Morena. <laughs> Lovely to see everybody here today. Thanks to Tim also for inviting um, me to be a part of this uh, special season of, of sermons looking at ancient patterns uh, for modern times. Um, it's an honour to be, to be able to um, share with you today. I can't remember when I first heard this story of Cain and Abel, but it's one of those tales that stays with us from early on. I think so quickly do we absorb the themes of jealousy, sibling rivalry and murder. It's not even like we need a Bible to learn at least a heavy moral theme here. This norm against killing is perhaps universal in human culture. The story here at least is so well known that as a theologian Walter Brueggemann points out, it's easy for its telling to become quite routine. The crime in the story, the murder itself, is told of almost in passing. We read that Cain went out into the field, had some words with Abel, and killed him. Then we move on. As Brueggemann points out though, we mustn't reduce it to being merely a moral tale. Like so much scripture, especially like parables some of us have been looking into um, recently, there's much more to be gathered as we delve further into the text. Rather than being merely a cautionary tale about murder and resentment, the story and its echoes throughout scripture have much to do with our relationship to God and the options and freedom he gives us through our relationship with Jesus. I should acknowledge here too that the Cain and Abel story might seem an odd fit on a, for, for a series on archetypes from the Old Testament that we might live by. Um, Cain is not exactly a role model. Um, a, a, and he doesn't provide a pattern for us to, to follow, I don't think, just the opposite. But the scripture that Matthew Bartlett opened the series with just a few weeks ago does provide a perfect approach to what I want to talk about today. Um, and you'll recall the passage from Romans. Let's see if that comes up. Where Paul urges us not to conform to the pattern of this world, but to be renewed by the transforming of our mind so that we can discern what God's will is. And so powerful in this verse is the recognition that we humans follow patterns, that all too often we imitate the models and patterns of this world, but not the models we should. And again, this is what I want to emphasize. So I'm going to talk about imitation for a little bit, and then I'll come back to the story of Cain and Abel, and then move on to the gospel passage toward the end. This quote also grabbed my attention recently when Matthew shared it, uh, because a friend of mine, Luke Burgess, is hosting a conference in November in, in the States on this very topic, on this question of not conforming to the patterns of the world. And he's looking in, at, at, at this conference, it's about how we as humans need to overcome imitative problems and how we can overcome them. Luke's a professor of business uh, at the Catholic University um, in DC and a former entrepreneur who so nearly became a priest before discovering his calling as a writer. Uh, and Luke's written a book called Wanting that I've um, talked about with uh, a, a, a few of you. Um, 
called Wanting the Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. And I guess because of the concept, they've tried to pitch it slightly differently in subsequent titles, but um, it's an it's a ongoing conversation. And I thought it would be helpful to start here because Luke in this book talks just uh, about just how deeply ingrained our imitative tendencies have become in our digital age um, and how we're noticing them more in the digital age because of the patterns that digital culture um, generates. And he's looking at how the new science of imitation is suggesting that humans are way more imitative or mimetic than we once thought. It's easy to appreciate the cliches about imitation um, in relation to aesthetic mimesis or representational mimesis. When we talk about artworks, for example, um, art imitates life, lights, life sometimes imitates art, and imitation is the sincerest form of flattery and so on. Um, and in our own time, it's so ubiquitous, it seems, that I mean, you can have a perfect digital copy of anything you want, um, you know, if you have um, access, but um, it's, it, it's so common, it usually goes without saying. Um, it's a trickier thing, though, to talk about our darker and hidden tendency, tendencies when it comes to mimetic behaviours. Partly, Luke argues, because we don't like to admit that we're imitative that we depend on others for inspiration and examples. In his book, Luke explores the work of the Catholic anthropologist and literary theorist, René Girard, who we saw featured in that short video. Uh, Girard, who discovers in the great novelists um, this sort of secret hiding in plain sight, that people covertly want what others desire. And it's an interesting discovery because in Girard's own life, it's a discovery that led him then to ancient religions and to the Bible and to a, religi a personal religious conversion. As he was exploring this, he came to faith. Uh, and he later argued that this wasn't really his discovery, but something that's already there in some of the great, you know, great authors and in the Bible, of course. Um, and so he later titled one of his books, um, well, there's some of the science, some of you will be familiar with these um, writers. There's an article from the business world looking at how um, digital cult culture amplifies our imitative tendencies. And when we're looking at um, fads and bubbles and crashes, this really um, has, you know, really widespread ramifications. And then here's, here's Gerard um, with one of his main books, which he titled after the passage from Matthew, um, where Jesus says um, that he'll rev reveal things hidden since the foundation of the world. And one of these secrets, Gerard argues, is that our desires, which we like to consider original, are not really our own. Uh, he says that we're so hardwired to imitate, that we copy, we take after others, whether we intend to or, or not. Um, and it's something we therefore... we often try to hide. Uh, and this leads into all sorts of trouble. In the art world and in pop culture, there's long been a premium placed on originality, of course. Uh, we sometimes think of copycats as uninspired people who can't come up with their own ideas. Uh, in the world of business and competition, uh, people often say it's better to innovate than it is to imitate. Um, though we're, we're learning, I think, more and more how 
closely related those two things are. And in particular, I was at training day recently where Scotty Reeves was talking about the importance of adopting a model before you go on to make it your own and change it and adapt it for your own purposes. Um, so we're, we're exploring those, um, how those two things work together. Um, but the, the slogan generally is be original, don't, don't copy someone else. Um, so imitation gets a bad rap. And you can see in, there's an American car commercial just emphasizing that importance of being an original, not following after someone else. So there seems to be, there seems, I don't know. Maybe there's better, better examples. Um, there seems to be quite a lot of anxiety associated today with copying. We see it in fears about cloning, about ChatGPT, artificial intelligence, doing even copying or replicating our um, creative processes as well. Um, piracy, plagiarism, and so on. About being followed or not followed in social media. Girard argues that we're so mimetic that we imitate one another without even thinking. And some, there are all sorts of quirky examples about this. One is um, that weird moment you have sometimes if you're walking down the street and someone's, there's no one else on the footpath, but someone else is coming towards you. And despite the easy thing to do to avoid that person, sometimes you awkwardly end up mirroring the direction that they take. So you, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a odd and strange thing. Um, there's one example. And the choices we make to acquire things as well. Even our desires. I mean, a pair of shoes look good on a model. There might have been an example up there. Or on a friend. So we want the same shoes. Or the same car. Someone else's style appeals to us. So we want to look like them. Dress like them. Even be like them. Fortunately, modern consumer culture often means we can go out and buy a copy of whatever for ourselves. When the object of desire is rare or unique, though, we run into trouble. When two people want the same thing, their desires naturally converge. And they each confirm for the other person how important that thing is. The more interest they show in it, the more it looks to be valuable to the other person. Um, we saw in the video too, we see this in the stock market, um, when people pile on or flee in panic in response to others' desires. We see it when kids are playing with toys, even if there are plenty, if there's one particular thing the cool kid goes after, sure enough, there's a, there's a sort of convergence there. In movies and literature, we see love triangles. Two people become rivals for a third person. Love. And so the conflict grows. And Gerard points out that um, violence itself, once that breaks out, once a, a rivalry reaches that point of coming to physical um, confrontation, that the pattern still is imitated. He says that violence itself is mimetic. And so um, we talk about tit for tat, right? Payback, right? With, with, with vengeance. Uh, and conflicts escalating because of a, a kind of feedback loop. Right? Imitation is a, a key part of that. As Luke puts it, though, um, Girard was a bit like a Sherlock Holmes on the, on the trail of this question and um, exploring literature and human culture um, over a long career followed these clues to the Gospels and to the Bible, ultimately concluding that it's Jesus who reveals and provides a way out of this hidden but seemingly inextricable problem. 
And we see this way out when we look to a model who is beyond our sphere of influence, in a sense. Think about role models you might have who have lived in, a, in, a, in another age, another era, or people who you're never going to encounter on the sports field because they're in a league way, way beyond yours. Um, and he says this is partly what we're talking about with um, Jesus as an external mediator. And we have that line from... First Timothy, that Christ is the one mediator between God and humans. So if we return to the story of Cain and Abel, we can see more what Gerard and other mimetic theorists are talking about in the situation between those two brothers. One way of describing Cain's quintessential problem is that he's envious. Envy is maybe one of the most classic <coughs> symptoms of mimetic desire we feel when we want what others have. I think jealousy and envy are sometimes described as being simple, basic emotions without, um, you know, there's something we slip into without actually understanding perhaps why or how that um, um, clutches at us. Um, but, but these two emotions seem especially um, to be part of a, you know, an epidemic of, of psychological suffering today. Um, they appear to be a factor in mental illness in our age, and um, we have so many warnings about online cultures and um, cultures of envy in, in comparison. Um, there's an example. Whoops. Um, here's an article from The Guardian looking at this very problem. The, the writer starts out talking about how some friend of theirs recently won a journalism prize and they were they were up all night fuming about it and other other examples and so on um with the closer people are the sometimes the harder or the um the more likely this problem can be because uh, we look we look to others um and it's a particularly um sibling sort of sort of problem um i should say too before coming back to Kane that I'm not going to explore today the extreme psychological distress or enmity that comes with murderous intent. I'm not a trained psychologist, uh, and if you've caught any of the recent TV coverage of murder trials with psychiatrists on the stand, um, there are obvious complex and precarious conditions that tip, tip people over into homicidal behaviour. Um, but the passage itself doesn't dwell on Cain's actual killing of Abel. We're encouraged instead, I think, to focus on the psychological state of Cain prior to the killing and then on his situation afterwards. One clue to understanding the passage seems to be that the story is not a matter of one sacrificial offering to God being inherently better than the other one. It's not that Abel was favoured because he was a shepherd or that Cain wasn't because he's a farmer. In Girard's analysis of this passage, Cain is distressed because he sees what Abel has received and he wants the same. He takes his brother as his model and in so doing he becomes a rival for God's favour. His desire is imitative of his brother's desire. And it's the consequence of this desire that the passage draws our attention to. Other people are going to receive things that we wish we had too. But the Lord warns that it's how we react to that situation that matters. 
and he, he warns Cain. Right? There's that strange passage just after we're told about what the two offerings is. There's a strange passage where the Lord takes Cain aside and says, look, what's going on? And he says, sin is waiting to pounce. And what, what happens? Cain goes right out into the field and he's swept, swept along. Um, it's how Cain reacts because of his desire that matters. And it's this temptation that Gerard actually equates with original sin, which is especially problematic because we can so easily fail, like Cain does, to recognize it when it counts. The mimetic psychiatrist, Jean-Michel Bougolian, writes in a book called The Genesis of Desire, that the sin of Cain and Abel is really also the sin of Adam and Eve. We were looking at this recently when uh, Tim and Jonathan explored these questions. Um, Bugolian says that part of the fall and the couple's grief on leaving paradise is that Adam and Eve never really know why they've been expelled. And they know they've been disobedient. But the workings of that are quite strange. And there's a... I don't like to put long quotes up, but, but this is quite a helpful one, I think. Um, for, for this context. Adam and Eve imagine that God has punished them for having disobeyed. They have no understanding at all of the mechanism that has been governing their psychological movements, that has destroyed their union and produced a difference between them and set them apart from each other and from God. They think the serpent gave them some bad advice and that it's all the serpent's fault. In reality, rivalrous desire is now and perpetually working inside them in every moment and in every respect. And to separate and divide their numerous descendants, beginning with their sons, Cain and Abel. Another way of, maybe that seems strange, but another way to think about it is to recall Christ's plea when he's on the cross. And he says, he calls out to our Father. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I think Ugolian's making the same point about Adam and Eve's misrecognition of what's caused their, their grief, their, what's brought them to this sorrow, um, sorry state. As the commentator in the NLT version that I read for this, um, preparing the sermon, puts it, what grieves God is not that Cain's offering is inherently unsatisfactory but that he has a disobedient attitude and looks to his brother instead of God as a model. And it's this turning away from God that leads to the grief. Same again as the experience of Eve. Gerard puts it a bit more concisely. He says, the story teaches us that original sin is real. It's the same thing as the general temptation of disregarding the will of God and preferring our own will, which turns out to be what our neighbor desires. That's, that's, again, that's the key part of Gerard's theory. Uh, he goes on to point out then that Cain's story is the main event in terms of original sin because it's the founding murder. Right After Cain, there are foundations for the first city. That's when these prohibitions and institutions are established. Um, this is the prohibition that demonstrates also that violence, again, is also a, a mimetic 
kind of behavior. Something that can rapidly spiral out of control. And it's foregrounded in the, in the Genesis passage we looked at. Immediately after the murder, when the first thing Cain senses, after he's killed Abel, is that he's a marked man. Fearing for his life. Sensing that this crime is bound to inspire retaliation. He knows it. You know, he says essentially, now that I've murdered my brother, everyone's going to come after me. Anyone out there will, will kill me. And to stem this threat, God places a prohibition and warning on vengeance against Cain. Like, kill Cain and sevenfold vengeance will be, um, you know, what, what you receive in return. Jonathan Boston asked last week, Great question. Why does humanity have so many bad desires? And I think if we look at Girard's analysis, um, our tendency to imitate means that our desires can be unstable and can attach to so many potential um, rivalrous models. Human desiring itself, when misunderstood or based on rivalrous models, generally leads to trouble. Ugolian argues elsewhere that mimesis in Girardian terms is, is such an essential um, faculty, part of our human uh, intelligence, that its role in relationships is something more like the role of gravity in, in the physical world. It pulls us together. It creates the bonds between people. We mirror what you know, love um, puts out, what it hopes to return. There's payback, there's paying forward. So much of our friendship and love are reciprocal sorts of um, behaviors. So accordingly, not conforming to the patterns of this world is what Scripture calls us to. And the Gospels and New Testament, of course, are steeped in this language of imitation. And in counterpoint to Adam, we have the perfect model or mediator in Jesus. We read about imitating in Paul's epistles where Paul says, imitate me, just as I imitate Christ. The more curious thing is that Jesus himself um, doesn't say, imitate me because I'm great, come and follow me, I'm the son of God. He, and he himself imitates the Father. So he shows us the way rather than giving us, you know, rather than saying, come to me for my sake, he's saying, look to the Father, this is what I'm, you know, he shows us how. In the passage from John's Gospel that we heard today, Jesus, of course, is contending with the mimetic desire of Peter and instructing him how to overcome mimetic desire. Peter is worried about what another disciple is going to receive. And Jesus says to him, essentially, what's that to you? You need to look to me instead. It's a bit like Jesus saying, stay in your own lane, you know, as the coaches, the coaches point out. Look to God instead of to other models. What does this mean in practical terms? When I was first reading Gerard and exploring this question, it's, it's quite confronting. I mean, some of you may be um, by some of the mimetic theory here, perhaps yeah, half of it looks true, maybe not all of it, um, but if we reckon with it, um, if it really is part of our makeup, then the implications are quite humbling. Um, as Gerard says, imitation is inevitable. 
even if we rebel against some laws when we're being anti-mimetic or too cool for school, we're still unwittingly following other examples, plenty of models of rebels um, to, to go around. Often we call them influences, whether they're good influences or bad influences. Bob Dylan suggested that everyone has to serve someone, and the American writer David Foster Wallace said, everybody worships somebody or something. So by the same token, I think Gerard is saying, we all, we all imitate, one way or another. Um, so if we accept that, and the science is looking pretty compelling, then the real question is, who are you going to follow? Who are we going to follow? In our age of Twitter, whose slogan used to be, follow me, um, I think the answer is still clear. Sometimes, people seem critical of Christianity, I think, precisely because of this role of imitation. And the common assumption that imitating leads to pale copies. Right? Uh, just going along with this lot over here, nothing new. But I think in reality, following, following Jesus means learning from God. Learning how to live life to the fullest. We don't become clones, but we become more who we were each created to be. One last way to think about this is uh, to, to bear in mind the reflections of the American pastor, John Piper. And he's written about the same passage from John. And he says, this is how we sin as a wife. Compare, compare, compare. We crave to know how we stack up compared to others. And Piper recalls all the talented, clever pastors at Wheaton College, feeling jealous, but then the relief of Jesus' words and how they landed on him with such joy. He writes, Jesus will not judge me according to my superiority or inferiority over anybody. No preacher, no church, no ministry. These are not the standards. Jesus has a word for me to do, and a different one for you. It's not what he has given anyone else to do. And there is a grace to do it. So the question is, will I trust him for that grace and do what he's given me? Jesus provides a pathway beyond the traps and delusions of imitative design. Because in following him, we are led into a life beyond compare, beyond compare, in a sense. What God is looking for, in terms of the commentary I read in the version I looked at, is not so much sacrifice, but and in other places he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Um, that's another topic I might talk about that um, another time. But in obedience, he's looking for our faithfulness. And it's a, it's a funny word, obedience, because it seems to have had a bad rap. We tend to think it's something um, to be wary of, or that it's an old-fashioned concept to not delve too much into. But the root of it means to, to come from listening. It's that audience, edience, um, main piece of the word there that's about listening. And part of following Jesus is to tune into what he's really telling us. Prayer itself is about listening and paying attention before it's about talking. I hope what I've talked about uh, illustrates why the solution to this problem 
uh, is following Christ and looking for God's desire or God's will for the truest realization of our own desires. I used to wonder how on earth I'd be better off trusting someone else's ideas uh, in God's will if it wasn't my will or idea. Wouldn't I be better off pursuing my own interests? Doing my own thing is, is the same goes. On the face of it, it might sound strange and counterintuitive, as Jesus says, that whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. But to recognize that this model and guide is the perfect model, the most awesome model, who lived, who lives, changes everything. Jesus blows away those tired myths uh, people often live by, like that old song Frank Sinatra had about doing it my way, I did it my way. Instead, when we follow Christ, the perfect model, since we are each unique in the first place, we become more like who we were meant to be in the first place and have a much better chance of realizing our potential. Our minds, to return to Romans, our minds become renewed as, as we come to realize through our own desires God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. As Psalm 34, sorry, 37 verse 4 urges us, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for having set the perfect example for us and having shown us how to live. Please help us to turn to you in all we do, to love you with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul and all our strength. Help us to love our brothers and sisters and neighbours and to be forgiving. In Jesus' name.